0: together to honor the reading of God's word and we'll be in chapter 18 beginning in verse 1 The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord Arise and go down to the potter's house and there I will let you hear my words So I went down to the potter's house and there was there he was working at his wheel And the vessels he was making of clay were spoiled in the potter's hand and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good To the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done? declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent from the disaster that I intended to do it due to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does, does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do it. Now, therefore, say to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you And devising a plan against you. Return every one from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. But they said, This is in vain. We will follow our own plans, and will every one act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. Chapter nineteen one through three. Thus says the Lord Go buy a potter's earthenware flask and take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priest and go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom at the entry of the potstured gate and proclaim there the words that I tell you. You shall say, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such a disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle verse 10 and 11 then you shall go then you shall break the flask in the sight of the men who go with you and shall say to them thus says the lord of hosts so will i break this people and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel so that it can never be mended men shall bury in topeth because there will be no place else to bury God's word through the prophet Jeremiah. You read through the book of Jeremiah with a discerning eye. You see we're on chapter 18. You might want to go with the first and second grade, the kindergarten and first graders one, one week. Most of us have been in the exact same place as Jeremiah was. Jeremiah went down to a potter's house and he watched a potter take a lump of clay and form it into a pot. And, and I'm sure your experience isn't very much different than mine where you've gone to some kind of craft show or some place that they're trying to tell you how they used to do things way back in the day and there's somebody there, you know, kicking the stone wheel with his foot and another wheel is Corresponding to that, and they put this clay on the stone, and the potter takes some some water, and he puts him, his hands on the clay, and it just seems like magic. He he presses into the clay, and just like it just grows out of the the stone, this beautiful pot. It, and I remember just being mesmerized by that. It just seems so fantastic how this potter. Not doing anything that I could see very much, just could somehow raise to life this lumpy piece of clay. But on this particular day, Jeremiah must have been watching a potter who was frustrated with clay. Because every time he tried to form something up, it just didn't work, whether the clay was defective or what was the problem? maybe Jeremiah couldn 't see, but he could see that there was a problem, and every time the potter would try to form the clay into a certain way, just as the potter wanted it to happen, the clay was resistant in some way, and he 'd have to smash the clay back down into another lump and then try again and as the, the potter was forming the pot, the preacher jeremiah was was forming sermon, he could see that God had led him down to this particular place for a message that he needed to send to his people through Jeremiah. And this sermon takes shape over chapters 18 and 19, and there are several lessons that we can draw out of the sermon. I want to mention two or three and the applications that go along with those. The very first thing that we see from Jeremiah's sermon and perhaps the most important thing about the sermon is Jeremiah's insistence on the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty may be another way of saying the same thing, the supreme authority of God. Jeremiah wants to make sure at the very outset of his sermon, before anything else gets said, that his congregation understands that God is completely in control. He's completely sovereign over all things. And in verse 6, we see as one of the greatest rhetorical questions of the Bible. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? It's a question that doesn't need an answer. Of course, uh, the potter has supreme authority over the clay, just as God has supreme authority over his creation, namely Judah. God, as the creator, is free to do with whatever he wants to do with his creation. That, That needs to sink all the way down. God is the Creator. And He alone is absolutely free to do whatever He wants with His creation. Which includes nations, and includes families, and includes specific individuals. He is not bound in any way. He's completely free to set his sovereign hands on whatever he wants to set his sovereign hands on and make whatever he wants to make out of what he's laying his hands on. It might be helpful when we think about the sovereignty of God for it to sort of sink down, to just look at some Bible passages to to really try to grasp the extent of God's sovereignty. So I just want to walk you through a few places. You won't need to turn to them. Just remember these as we we go through them. God exercises supreme authority over creation. He is completely sovereign over everything that's created. Psalm 135. He makes clouds rise. Have you ever sat at the beach and you watch cloud formations? He's making that happen. He sends lightning with rain. He brings out the wind from the storehouse. Yeah, you know, I feel like it should be about 25 miles an hour today in Wilmington. So I'm just opening up my storehouse and I'm sending it out. He's completely sovereign over all these things. Psalm 104, he makes grass grow. That was helpful for me because when I looked at my yard, you know, I just said, well, I guess the Lord just doesn't want the grass to grow in my backyard very well. He's sovereign over that thing. He's making the grass grow so that the cattle can eat. He plants, he cultivates, he brings forth food from the earth. Matthew 26:26. 26, 26. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet how how is it they feed themselves? Jesus says, the heavenly Father feeds the birds. God's supremely authoritative over all of creation. God exercises supreme authority over all nations. Job 12. He makes nations great. He destroys nations. He enlarges nations. He disperses nations. Acts 17. From one man He made every nation of men, and He alone determines the set times for them and the exact places where they should live. God is supremely authoritative over our days. Psalm 139, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came into being. Before any one day appeared on the screen For you in human history, he's already ordained all of them in advance. Jeremiah 1.5, Jeremiah knows this. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. God exercises supreme authority over things that seem to be random. Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. You see how the Bible is just piling up these places where you just can't get away from God being sovereign over all things. And finally, God exercises supreme authority over salvation. God exercises supreme authority or sovereignty over your own salvation. James 1.18 God chose to give us birth through the word of truth. John 1.12 Yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent. Children born not of a human decision or a husband's will, but children born from God. And then I love how Paul states it in 1 Corinthians 1. It is because of God that you are in Jesus. I mean, that's as simple as it gets. Why is it that you are in Jesus? It's because of God. It's not because of you. It's not because of other people. It's really just because of God. And then that's why Paul concludes in 1 Corinthians, therefore, if anyone wants to boast, boast in what? What does he say? Boast in the Lord. All boasting comes back to God because he's completely sovereign. Philip Ryken says this in his commentary on Jeremiah. The potter's wheel is a lesson in the absolute sovereignty of God. It puts an end to pride and silences every boast. God can do whatever he wants with us. God can do whatever he wants with us but any time you emphasize the sovereignty of god you hear this chafing i heard some of it just as i was going through that list did you hear it it's just just makes you a little bit uncomfortable that somebody or something else seems to have so much control when you feel like hey I'm in control, aren't I? I'm sort of managing and manipulating. I'm making choices. And so whenever we talk about the sovereignty of God, there's this chafing sound that we hear, and maybe the sound comes from our own heart. And I just thought about this and thought, why, why the chafing at this idea of the sovereignty of God? You know, in China, if you've been watching any part of the Olympics or the build-up to the Olympics, what's been one of the main concerns prior to the actual the Olympic Games? Air quality. You notice that? I mean, half the stories are on the air quality. They're taking the air quality, and then you see people running or biking, and they have to wear these masks, or you can't see things because it's. So foggy or smoggy in Beijing. So half the things are talked about in these lead-up stories happen to do with the toxins in the air. And China's very determined to try to clean that out so it has a good image to the world. We live in a China where our air quality, what we breathe in every day, is toxic. Self-control, self-esteem, self-determination, self-sufficiency, self-exaltation. All these things are in the air that we breathe. Every billboard you go by, every magazine rack you see, every commercial, every... uh, clothing store that you find yourself in. Every infomercial. Everything is revolving around you looking at you and examining you and trying to get a better you out of you. It's all self-centered. We are sucking up this air and we just aren't aware of how toxic it is until we get to the sovereignty of God. And that's what creates this chafing, I think. This all this self-examination clouds our mind into thinking that as the clay, we should be able to make certain demands of the potter. I mean, if you've ever felt that way, then your mind has gotten clouded by you being too important. If you've ever felt like you're on the wheel, and you just like to say, this is what I'd like to see happen here, and this, of course, well, that would look good, and... It's as foolish as a clay looking up to the potter and saying, I know what I should become. We we live in this toxic air of self-centeredness that when we come across the Bible, who opens up reality of the sovereignty of God. It feels like a, a chafing. We get a little tight around the collar about that. Which I think is why Isaiah is really right on target. And this quote is on the front of your bulletin. It comes from Isaiah 26. And he says this. He's using this very same illustration as Jeremiah is, and he says this. He says this to his congregation. You're turning things upside down. What you think is right is upside down. It's as if the potter... It's it, it, as it, as is the potter were thought to be like the clay. The potter's nothing like the clay. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it? He didn't make me. Can the pot say of the potter? He doesn't know anything. I mean, it's kind of laughable. You, you. I, I think some somewhere there's laughter in Isaiah as he's using this. Is, is it possible that the pot can look at the potter and say, "Well, you didn't make me." You don't, you don't know what you're doing up there. Isaiah and Jeremiah are telling their congregations, "You're upside down. All of your thinking, it doesn't, it's not just a little off, it's upside down," which is, it, which makes perfect sense when you encounter Jesus in the New Testament. Because almost at every level when you encounter Jesus, you, you would say, well, this is the way it should be. And then he comes into the picture and says, well, no, you're upside down. Luke chapter 9. Whoever wants to save his life. I'm volunteering. Love to save my life. How do I do that? Take care of myself. Yeah, all right. Eat right. All right. Now, if you would like to save your life, what, is the, what does the scripture say? you got to lose it. Well, it's upside down. That's not at all what the culture would tell me. That's not at all what I would naturally think. If anyone wants to be first, anybody looking for first, I'm volunteering. How would you be first in the kingdom of God? If you'd like to be last. Uh, well, didn't see that hand, did you? Whoever wants to become great. I mean, in our culture, who doesn't want to become great? And Jesus comes in and and says, I can show you exactly how to be great. Oh, everybody's clamoring for the answer until, what does he say? You've got to become a slave of everyone. It's completely Upside down. I mean, is there anyone here pursuing real greatness by trying all they can with all of their heart to become the slave of everyone they see? And poor Peter. I love Peter because he's he would think so much like I would think. R- remember, that We're just at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And Peter says, Jesus, the whole town's looking for you. We've hit the jackpot. This has got to be it. Let's go back. Hurry up. And what does Jesus say? Now's the time to go to a different town. When Jesus first tells his disciples and Peter, I'm going to the cross. What does Peter do? Uh, Potter, let's come over here. Clay needs to give you some information. And the clay says, uh, we're not going that way. What does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Peter is with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The soldiers are coming for Jesus. And what does Peter do? He pulls out the sword and he's not a good aim, I guess. He misses the guy's, you know, veins or something. He just gets the guy's ear. And what does Jesus say? Charge on, Peter. Put away your sword. I mean, can't you hear in all of those places, Peter, of Jesus saying to Peter, Peter, you're upside down. Your, your very natural instinct Your natural impulse should tell you that you're just going in the wrong direction. Which I think should be very helpful for us. As you get into conversations, as you think about just direction in your own life, at least your natural instinct could be as upside down as what God would want. And what's the most counterintuitive or upside-down symbol on the entire planet? I mean, what is the very last thing you would expect from God? It's completely upside-down. The Messiah, the Son of Man, has come to what? To serve. To serve. But God has come in the flesh to serve and not to be served. And instead of asking for things, He's giving things. It's the most counterintuitive and upside down message that you could ever imagine. And so without the Bible, our our most logical religious approach would be something like this. If we just didn't have the Bible, and we thought there was a God, we would think something like this. I guess I've got to work hard, make a good name for myself by doing whatever I think is the right thing, and then when I meet God, I'm going to give Him that good name. And hope He accepts me. And what does the Gospel say? <laughs> it turns it upside down. It says God has come down into your life and He's taken His good name and He's given it to you. He is not asking for your name because it's not good enough. He's coming down to you and saying, I'm giving you my name. The most logical approach for us is to say, I obey, therefore, I'm accepted. I'm doing the right things, so God must accept me. And what does the Gospel say? The Gospel says, you're accepted. Huh? Without obeying? That's right. You're accepted. Just as you are. Therefore, you obey. It's counterintuitive. It's upside down from what we would naturally think. Jesus is the only right-side-up person who ever entered this upside-down world. And so we shouldn't be surprised that when we hear him talk and we hear him teach and we see what he does, that it's, it's counterintuitive to what you and I would think. But the second problem with the sovereignty of God... Not just the chafing, but then it sort of makes you feel like, am I, am I just a lump of clay? I mean, I mean, if he's sovereign over all those different areas, and Paul, you only mentioned four or five, he's probably sovereign over 25,000 others. I mean, so am I just sort of stuck here? I mean, what difference does it make what I do? Why would I do anything particular if, if he's sort of in control of all things? I mean, have you ever felt that way? I think that's a very understandable way to feel. But I want you to notice in the Bible, and we'll see it here in Jeremiah, that the Bible never pre- presents the sovereignty of God in that way, that it just sort of turns you into a lump of clay that you have no responsibility. Let's look at this text right here, Jeremiah 18, verse 7. He's just told us about the sovereignty of God. Can I not do what You, as this potter has done, says the Lord. And then verse 7. If at any time an evil nation that I have declared judgment on, if at any time that nation repents and turns around, then I will do that nation good. And if at any time a a nation that I, I've wanted to do good and has decided to do evil. If they decide to do evil, then I'm going to to do them harm. You see that in the text that now Jeremiah is opening it up to. It matters how you guys respond here. And he says in verse 11, repent. Turn around. You're going in the wrong direction. He's telling us here there is a sovereignty about God, but there's also a responsibility of man. All over the Bible you see these two ideas standing like two pillars. And, and the difficulty is, is, is if we get off on one side of those, that argument or another. And Jeremiah doesn't try to attempt to explain what he's doing. He just lets them stand there and say, I want you to understand these two things. God is completely sovereign, and you are completely responsible. And you can find volumes and libraries full of trying to get these two things together. And I would suggest the Bible depicts them more as just two pillars standing there side by side. Both meant to capture our attention. Wayne Grudem says this about the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Exactly how God combines His sovereignty with our willing and significant choices, Scripture does not explain to us. But what we can say here in this text, confidently, is that God is in control and Jeremiah is calling his people to turn around. You're upside down. You're going in the wrong direction. Come back. Verse 12. Jeremiah ends his sermon. And they say, that's in vain. NIV translates, it. it's hopeless. I mean, let's just take a moment to imagine what it must have felt like to be Jeremiah at this point. Jeremiah has spent his week looking at the potter. And as he's watching the potter, Jeremiah begins to form his sermon. He's got a great sermon illustration this week. He's got a great text. He's coming. He's coming with passion. He's pleading with his people. He's telling them, Can't you see you're upside down? You're moving in the wrong direction. Please, please. Turn around and go this way. And he spent 30 minutes pouring his heart out to the people. And after the sermon is over, the benediction is given, he goes to the door and he greets his congregation as they come out and they look at him and say, Pastor, (laughs) you're wasting your breath. I'm not going to go in that direction. And if you don't mind this week when you're talking to the potter, would you just tell him that I'm just going to follow my own plans? I mean, what would you do if you were the pastor at that moment? I think I'd go home, work on my resume, and probably have a job, a different job within a week. I mean, if right after the sermon, the people just look at you and say, we're not going to do that. You're wasting your breath. Try another congregation. We're not going to go that direction. That's how hard the people's hearts have become. And then Jeremiah does something very interesting, very powerful, very memorable, and something that's going to get him him into a great deal of trouble. Chapter 19. He goes, and who does he get? He gets the leaders. He gets the leaders together. He goes through Jerusalem to a south gate, and at the end of, the, out of the south gate is like the garbage dump. If you have any refuse, if you have anything dying, if you have anything you need to get rid of, you go through the south gate and you dump it out of the south gate. And Jeremiah takes the leaders. He takes a pot and he looks at the leaders and he says this. This is what's happening. No one forgot the sermon illustration. You leaders are shattering the people because you will not tell them about God and His Word. This is what's happening. Do you not see it? If you're an elder, if you're a a ministry leader, if you're a dad, you have great responsibility for those that you lead. You have a greater responsibility than the other people that aren't in that category. What had happened in Jeremiah's day? The people had forgotten the Word of God. They, in fact, they'd lost the Word of God. And this may be hard to believe, but people were coming to church and there wasn't any reading of the Word. Can you imagine being in church like that? They didn't even read the Word. They just went through the exercises but nobody was getting anything from the Word. And the people begin to drift. They, they begin to get clouded in their mind thinking, well, I'm kind of sovereign. I need some choices. I need some, some power of my own. And Jeremiah is taking the leaders and saying, you're going to be held responsible for this. I don't think Jeremiah was asking for the fog to always be lifted off of people's life. Sorry, Nathan and Grant. Because the fog and darkness in lives are always going to be rolling in. Some of you are in that right now. Oh, it's just—it's clouded in my mind. It's—it's it's clouded in my life. I just—I just need a, a compass and a heading. I need some way to get out of this situation that I'm in. And I, as your pastor, can't just come in and and get all the fog away. But I can come in and I can give you a compass, the Word of God, and I can give you a heading. Jesus Christ and say, let's move in that direction. A friend of mine who was in the FBI, he was part of a counter-terrorist training unit. And when you're in those kinds of situations, it's like the Rangers or the Navy SEALs or that kind of group where you're always doing these very odd exercises for training. And one of the training exercises was they would take you on a night where there are no, no, no moon, no stars. They blindfold you. They take you out in the ocean. They give you a tank, scuba gear, and they dump you off the side. And they give you a time and say, in this time, you have to swim underwater the whole way And in the pitch black, you have to come up and find the one little boat that's in the middle of the sea. you know how hard that would be? They gave him a compass and a heading. And he said you had to swim the whole time like this because it was so dark. If you got very far away, you just couldn't see the compass or you couldn't see the heading. I I wonder how many of us really have the Word of God right here. I mean, it's awfully dark when you get out into the world. And if you have the, the compass and the heading sort of over here, or, guys, I can't quite find the compass and the heading. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to get that on Sunday. but But you're going to spend the rest of your time paddling in whatever direction you want to go. You're going to be lost. Dads. Do you have a strategy for your family? If you join Christ Community Church, you should be proud that you have a group of elders who don't have a perfect strategy, but they work on the strategy. They think every month, how is it that we could do something better to mature the people at Christ Community Church? And so we tinker with this and add that and subtract that. But we're working on a strategy for your soul. If you were to join a journey group, there's a strategy. It's already mapped out for you to become a a better Christian, a more mature Christian at the end of your year of discipleship. But dads, do you have a strategy? I mean, when your kids walk out of your house, whether they're 6 or 7 and they're going to school, or whether they're 18 and they're going to college, do you have a strategy? Because when they get out, no matter what the age is, it's going to be awfully dark sometimes. It's going to be awfully clouded. And you're not going to be able to come in and just erase the darkness and the clouds. But have you given them a compass have you given them a heading to say, when it gets dark and it just doesn't look like you know where to go, just keep the Word of God right in front and keep Jesus preeminent. Just please keep moving in that direction. If you think your children are somehow just going to learn it on their own, oh, how state They're going to be attracted by every other false light there is in the world. Do you know your strategy, Dad? Does your wife know the strategy? Do your kids, if they're old enough, do they understand this is the strategy, this is how we're doing it? It's not a one-size-fits-all strategy. But there's a strategy that fits your family. Because you do not want to be This person, where God takes you aside and says, look what you're doing. Your family is crumbling. Your church is crumbling. Your nation is crumbling because you will not teach them the compass and you will not show them a heading. the only way to get rid of the pollution in China was rain. They were I just imagine all these atheists praying for rain in China. Hoping, we're hoping and praying that they understand the God who sends the rain. And what clears things out is a showering of God's Word in your life. And Jeremiah has given us a showering of God's Word. And so maybe you've been here, and what you've really needed to hear is that God is completely sovereign over everything in your life. Maybe you've been here and you've seen Jeremiah take the hammer and break the potted clay and you're saying to yourself from God's word, oh, I don't want to be that way for my church, my ministry, my family. I'm praying that this showering of Jeremiah 18 and 19 might Wash away some of the cloudiness in your thinking so that you would know the truth and you would have the courage to walk in there. Let's pray together. Lord, this is an image very powerful. It got Jeremiah into trouble, got him thrown into prison. Because the the people didn't want to go in your direction. All of us have a hardness of heart in some place that needs your hammer. And oh, how it's going to hurt at that first blow. But I I pray before we uh, we get too hard, our whole lives get too self-absorbed, that in your mercy on the pastor, on the elders, on the fathers, on the ministry leaders, and on everyone here, that you would come down like a hammer. Oh, please, in your mercy. And and break down those things that are self-exalting and build up something that is God-exalting in our lives. Lord, you have given so much of yourself to us. You, you've richly supplied your word to us. You've given us responsibility to shepherd some very important things. I pray now as we take a, an offering that we recognize that all things are really in your hands and we're not giving something to you. We're, we're giving it back to you. A token of our understanding that You own it all. Help us to be people who live without titles and claim to cars and homes and bank accounts, but understand that Your name is imprinted over ours. May Your Word rain down in our hearts this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.